0: Okay, everyone, how you doing? This is Steve. Welcome to my living room, podcasting here out of my living room. Uh, it's been a while. I am fully cognizant of that. Um, yeah, let me, let me tell you what I've been doing um, the last couple months. The last couple months, I have been applying to PhD programs, which, if you, if you ever have the chance to do it, uh, do it once. <laughs> but don't do it more than that. Um, it's sort of—I don't know. It's not—it's um, not difficult. It's not even really that stressful. The deadlines are coming and going, and I'm able to get everything in on time. It's not even that it's stressful. It's just well. Okay, let's let's let me give you an example. Of what I'm running into here. Uh, I submitted an application last week to a school you have undoubtedly heard of, but. Um, I want to protect, you know. I don't want to go here on my little podcast and um, make it sound like I'm talking bad about a school, especially since you know I might be. Well, there's like a five percent chance I might actually go there, but um, you know, I because you might recognize it. I want to change some letters around to the name, so let's let's call it. Um, let's see what works. What works? Let's call it uh, Marvard. Marvard. Um, that way, you won't know which school I'm talking about. Mm. So Marvert's application, I go through the whole application process, right? This takes hours and hours and hours, and I give them all the uploads and the transcripts and the writing samples and the, the uh, CV and all the things that they want. And then you hit send, and you pay your money, and you think you're done. You think you're done. And then this other screen comes up, and it's like, hey, actually, you're not done. And it takes you to this other application, which basically, here's my little rant, okay? It asks you all of your your race, gender, all those kind of questions, which I already purposely didn't answer the first time around. Here's why I didn't answer those questions, okay? I'll take a sip of coffee here. Okay, here's why, I don't, here's why I don't answer questions like that on these PhD applications. Well, wait, do I want to get into this? What am I doing? We're not going to get into that. You know what? Um, bottom line is these universities, and, and for, some, for some very good reasons, have some diversity requirements that they have to meet. And so they're always very interested to know um, if you come from a certain ethnic background, if you are uh, female, if you're underrepresented in the field of study, um, obviously they're very eager to get more of those students on board. What that means for me as a white male uh, isn't necessarily positive or encouraging, and maybe I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, we want we want diversity. We're all we're all in support of that. I don't think there's any question there, but maybe the way that we go about getting that diversity in in our in our PhD level programs isn't the greatest. Okay, I'm not going to go down that road anymore. Um, but here, let me just read a couple quick things. So this is from this additional application that I had to fill out for uh, Marvard. Um, here's a question here. Are you a lineal or collateral descendant of? And they just list these random names. All these people live in Massachusetts. I've never heard of them. Um, you're supposed to click the box of all these people you might be related to. Please indicate if you have a family surname of Baxendale, Downer, Hudson, Thayer, Clearly, I don't. Um, I don't I don't really know why they want to know all this stuff, but it kind of makes you feel like you're outside the club even before you start. And maybe that's the point. I don't know. Anyway, Marvord, um, hopefully you'll still consider my application even after. Uh, of course, no one can tell who you are because <clears throat> I replaced some letters. But anyway, that is not what we're here to talk about. We are here to put the cap. We're here to put the end The final period, the final exclamation mark on the book of Judges. So why don't we get to that business right now. So the way I'd like to do this, kind of to summarize everything that we've talked about, I just want to go through very quickly and summarize, um, by podcast, by chapter, what we, what we uh, cover, the things that kind of get the main topics, the main points, and then i just kind of like to wrap it up with some final thoughts. So, uh, if you remember all the way back, we're talking a year ago, a year ago, we started looking at Judges. I can't believe it. Chapter one. Chapter one. We pointed out that Joshua and Judges go together, that these two books are meant to be written, or meant to be read, rather, as a single unit. There's three problems that we learn of. At the beginning of Judges, following from the book of Joshua, there's three problems. Number one, Joshua, their great leader, the legendary leader sent by God to lead them into the promised land. Joshua is dead. That's problem one. Problem two, the Canaanites are still around. Contrary to... That the tone and everything that we learn in the book of Joshua, the Canaanites are actually still around. And number three, the Israelites are now beginning to imitate the Canaanites. They're beginning to imitate the Canaanites socially, they're beginning to imitate them with their religious practices. Remember the guy uh, Adonai Bezek? He had his fingers and his toes cut off by Judah and Simeon. Um, and they're supposed to be separate. Just be separate from these other groups. And they're not. They're imitating. That, that was a Canaanite punishment that they mete out. And they're imitating now the Canaanites. Okay, so the author in chapter 1 is wanting us to recognize the characteristics of specific tribes. And this will actually go throughout the book of Judges. Um, you'll notice throughout the book that the tribe of Judah is generally um, exalted and, and viewed positively, while the tribe of Benjamin is degraded through the text. Uh, Remember, King Saul is from Benjamin. David is from Judah. So in effect, the writer of Judges, the person or people who compiled the book of Judges, they're putting David, King David, they're putting him in a positive light. They're putting King Saul in a negative light. So there's there's some political undertones that come with the composition of the book of Judges that all, you know, of course, David and Saul are much, much later than the time period that the book of Judges covers. But the book of Judges is being written during the time of David, during the time of Saul, or very shortly thereafter. Okay, all that to say that the biblical authors sometimes have what? We've said this before. They have personal agendas. They have political agendas. Um, these scrolls, these books, can be divinely inspired, and we believe that they are divinely inspired. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they still retain this personal agenda. And what implications does that have when we read the Old and the New Testaments? What what possible implications does that have when we go to interpret a book like Judges or like the writings of Paul in the New Testament? Um, I would argue, and I think I've argued through this podcast and I will continue to argue, that it should have implications. Just because something is inspired by God, it is in the Bible, doesn't mean that we should just dismiss the fact that these people had their own agendas. They had, these are people, real people writing in time to a certain group of people that were not us. Okay. That shouldn't cause us problems. Hopefully it doesn't. Book of Judges talks about military failures, the military failures of the different tribes of Israel and Judah. Uh, We see a downward progression throughout the book from victory Defeat. The end of Joshua is this high note of victory, and judges almost immediately begin to see defeat. Um, the southern tribes, again, are portrayed generally as successful. The northern tribes as generally failing. Again, a pro-David, pro-South agenda. Um, so what we see really from, the, from chapter 1, and these themes continue on throughout the book, we see a composition of... The book of Judges being compiled over time, probably by multiple authors. We have different stories. Each chapter or group of chapters tells a different story about a different judge or period of the judges. Um, Different time periods, probably these originated as oral tradition, um, but they reflect actual history. The, The period of Judges, for everything that I can read, everything that I can get my hands on, the period of Judges probably was a real historical time period in the history of Israel. And so the book of Judges is here to tell us just a few selections of what went on during that time. Okay, chapter two. Chapter two, Yahweh is going to remind the Israelites of the Mosaic Covenant. We talked about this idea of covenant and why it was so central to the theme of the book of Judges. Okay, is the God of the Old Testament vengeful? Is he violent? Is he judgmental? Did Jesus come to save us from this violent, judgmental God? Now, he came to save us from something. But did he come to save us from God? And we wrestled with that question. I also said during our podcast of chapter 2 that people who say that the God of the Old Testament and New Testament are different gods, those people do not know their Bibles to the extent that they should be making a statement like that. I maintain, obviously, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Now, are they being described differently? Are they being talked about differently? Yes. Again, part of the reason why we have to be very careful to understand what the Bible is. It spans thousands of years, from the first book of the Old Testament all the way to the last book of the New, the book of Revelation. We have a couple thousand years of time that we're talking about in there. Did the Israelite concept and view of God evolve during this period of time? Absolutely it did. But the New Testament version of who God is, God the Father, does not differ so substantially from the Old Testament to make them different gods. They are describing the same God, but we have different cultures filtering their experience as they talk about and as they describe this God. Okay, we also talked about in chapter 2 how modern-day Christians need to understand that they are in covenant with God. If we want to understand Christ and his sacrifice, we have to understand what a covenant is. Jesus' sacrifice is framed in the world of a covenant. We talked about how a covenant contains blessings. It's an unequal agreement between a person of power and a subordinate. It's a legal document. It's written in legal language. The more powerful party is legally obligated to penalize the more subordinate party if the terms of the covenant are broken. So we see God over and over saying, hey, I'm going to have to punish you now. you have have violated my covenant. You've been worshiping other gods. You've been unfaithful to me and so on and so forth. He's like, I am bound legally by the covenant that I made with you to now punish you. So the Old Testament God is often simply acting in accordance with the covenant that he and the nation of Israel, in effect, signed together and agreed upon. And so when we see Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, then punishing Israel. And then he says, you know what? Now I'm going to have mercy on you. I feel, I look at your suffering and I take mercy on you. That is Yahweh actually violating the own terms of his covenant that he set up. And he's saying, you know, you don't deserve mercy because of your actions, but I, am, I will freely give it anyway. And that is why the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. If we understand the covenant, we understand why that is true. Okay. Um, God, in effect, allowing suffering is actually in accordance with the covenant, which, with the legal agreement that the nation of Israel and he signed together. So we see God punishing the Israelites. We see it in chapter two. We see it throughout Judges. We see it throughout the Bible. Um, but at the same time, he's looking for a way to help them out. That's what makes God God. Even as he's punishing them out of his just, righteous judgments, he is always looking for a way to get his people out of the jam that they got themselves into. He's a loving God always, Old Testament and New. And he raises up these judges. Even as he is allowing their enemies to test Israel, he raises up people, people that will hopefully get them out of these predicaments. And that is why the God of the Old Testament, the God of the book of Judges, is a loving God. Okay, chapter 3. We have Ehud. You all remember Ehud. He's left-handed. He carries the tribute uh, up to Eglon. uh, The Israelites have been in subjection to Eglon. Remember, he was Jabba the Hutt. He's huge. He's fat. And Ehud plunges the sword into Eglon's fat body. And his fat folds over this 18-inch sword as he's stabbed. His guts, his excrement flow out, right? So Israel's enemy is um, assassinated. And by the way, I still really want to see that movie about Ehud. I don't know. Brad Pitt as Ehud? I don't know. I'm thinking like Brad Pitt, like Fight Club era, like Tyler Durden kind of character. I don't know. But we see this formula, right? We see it playing out. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. We see this phrase over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. And we see God acting in accordance with the covenant. The sons of Israel do evil in the sight of Yahweh. God is now obligated to enforce the terms of the covenant and to punish his people. Now, Ehud is interesting because he's introduced not as a judge, a mishpat, but as a Mashiach, which means savior. The expectation of a Savior, you can see, is already being ingrained into the national consciousness of the nation of Israel. We see God setting up this expectation many, many centuries before Jesus of a deliverer. Okay, moving on. Chapters 4 and 5. Well, we covered a lot, didn't we? It's kind of exciting to go through all this and revisit it all. Hopefully it is for you. Hopefully this isn't. Hopefully this isn't too wordy. I'm sitting here thinking, like, hopefully this isn't too, too redundant. Okay, chapters 4 and 5. This was the, uh, the women, Deborah and Jael. We have Sisera, who is a uh, Canaanite commander of the army. He oppresses Israel. Um, we also learn that the, the Canaanites have iron. They have iron chariots, iron weapons. The Israelites do not have these things yet. Deborah comes along. She is a judge. She's also female. We're meant to notice this. Um, you notice how the Bible doesn't really it draws attention to it, but it's subtle. Um, she's also a prophet. So not only is she a judge, but she's a prophet. She dispenses wisdom. and So she reminds Barak, uh, the Israelite commander, of his role that he needs to be the one to defeat Sisera. Well, Barak wants Deborah to come with him. He's not feeling all that confident. Meanwhile, Jael invites Sisera, the Canaanite commander, into her tent, which, of course, was wildly inappropriate. Sisera is on the run. Um, Jael invites him in, makes him comfortable, gives him a blanket, gives him milk. It's this very obvious maternal um, imagery. It's this weird combination of seduction and motherly treatment uh, paging Dr. Freud, you know, it's, wow. Anyway, it ends, she drives a tent spike through his head. Oh, my. And he's dead. And Barack, meanwhile, is left looking like a total tool. He's still chasing Cicero, Jael's already killed him. Chapter 5 is just a retelling of the same story, but in a song form, a poetic format, um, By any account, this is a very, very ancient song. It's been preserved for us. Uh, The Hebrew vocabulary has more in common with ancient Canaanite poetry than it does even Old Testament vocabulary. Uh, It may have been written immediately after the battle, for all we know. This is a battle that would have happened um, years and years and years before even King David. And the song that was invented to commemorate this event may have been preserved in oral history, from the battle itself. All right, chapter 6, 7, and 8 told us the story of Gideon. It starts out with the testing, uh, with the fleece. Um, Gideon is asking God to make this fleece wet to keep the floor dry. Remember, he laid this fleece out on the threshing room floor. He says, God, make the fleece wet, keep the floor dry, something that should theoretically be impossible to happen naturally. Uh, This has been called putting out a fleece for God's will, to test God's will. Uh, Most scholars, as we pointed out, do not think that Gideon is acting out of faith here or anything resembling faith. He already knows what he's supposed to do. He's more stalling for time than anything here. Um, Gideon's family, at the same time, is likely worshiping multiple gods. Uh, The altar to Baal or Baal is cut down. The Astra tree, the pole, is chopped down. The wood from the tree is used to set the fire to sacrifice to Yahweh, uh, which in effect means that the God itself, the Asherah God, is being sacrificed to Yahweh. So we have all this imagery of, of Gideon's family and, and the, these altars being destroyed and um, Yahweh's victory over these false idols in chapter 6. Chapter 7, Yahweh tells Gideon to reduce the size of his army. Remember Gideon has gathered an army, and Gideon, uh, Yahweh rather tells Gideon to whittle it down. Um, Gideon overhears the Midianites, his enemies, telling one another of a dream that they've had where Gideon is victorious over them. So he's encouraged, and now he's ready to fight. So we, we see Gideon requiring a huge amount of reassurance from God, from his enemies, um, before he, he's finally ready to take action. And then chapter 8. Uh, the town of Sukkoth, as Gideon is traveling. The town of Sukkoth, uh, which is an Israelite town, but it refuses to give provisions to Gideon and his army. They're all Israelites. They're all supposed to be helping each other. Sukkoth refuses. Um, and again, we see evidence that Israel really isn't a, isn't a unified nation so much as individual tribes, local territories, local, local clans. Now, this, <clears throat> this similar situation also happens at Penuel. So what does uh, Gideon do here? He gets revenge. He hunts down and whips the elders. He destroys the tower at Penuel. Um, We we see this transition, this rather rapid transition that Gideon undergoes from an uncertain man um, to a vengeful commander. He tries to make his own son kill these Midianite kings, but his son uh, rightly refuses to do so. So Gideon himself kills the Midianite kings. At the end of all this, Gideon melts down some gold and makes himself uh, an ephod, which is something that one of the Israelite priests would wear normally. And in effect, makes himself king. Um, He names his his son Abimelech, uh, which, if you remember, translates literally as uh, my father is king. The end lesson here that um, Gideon has all this potential before God. He, He is specifically chosen by God to do a certain job. But just because he has all this potential and he's chosen by God, that doesn't necessarily seem to translate automatically into Gideon being obedient to God. Gideon still has full license to be disobedient and we see that happening. Uh, It also doesn't mean that Gideon, at the end of the day, becomes all that great a guy. And he makes himself king at the end of it all, which is definitely not something that Yahweh would have condoned. It, it runs contrary to the Old Testament uh, commandments. And um, so we, we see in Gideon a conflicted creature who, in one hand, yes, was chosen by God, but on the other hand, may have abused his, his power. Okay, on to chapter 9, where we now get the story of Abimelech. Um, we go up north to Shechem. Shechem is a Canaanite city during this part of history. Baal is being worshipped there, the Canaanite god, Baal. Uh, There is no mention in this chapter of Yahweh or of Israel's covenant with Yahweh. Now Abimelech goes to Shechem and he makes this case, this very well thought out, eloquent case to the city elders that um, these 70 brothers that he happens to have, um, they should kind of just go away (laughs) and that he should be left alone to run Shechem By himself, who needs seventy other brothers who might contend for the city when they can just have one? Um, The elders agree. Abimelech hires some mercenaries. They track down all these brothers, and all but one of the seventy brothers are killed one by one, execution style. The text says that they are killed upon the same stone, which means they were basically killed one at a time. Now, the surviving brother, Jotham. He climbs the mountain, which is right next to Shechem, Mount Gerizim. And once he does so, he shouts out a challenge down to the people below, in effect to warn them that they are creating a monster in Abimelech. Now this man, Gaul comes around. And he makes an alliance with the elders of the city of Shechem, who have now sort of um, soured against Abimelech. But Abimelech overcomes them. He overcomes the elders and uh, Gaul. And as a result of this, the people of the town of Shechem are slaughtered. So the town that he wanted to rule, he ends up killing all the people there. Abimelech then goes to Thebes, which is nearby. And it's here that a uh, woman throws a millstone, crushing Abimelech's head. Um, Abimelech is wounded. He sees this. He tells his soldier um, to kill him. Because he doesn't want it to be known that a woman was the one who who basically killed him. Uh, We see here here a cautionary tale uh, against ambition, which we've already started to see with Gideon, now we're seeing with his son. We also see a cautionary tale against raw emotion going unchecked. So not only against ambition, but Abimelech doesn't have any accountability here. The elders certainly aren't providing it for him. Um, he kills all of his family, all of his brothers. And he's just sort of left to his own devices to do whatever he wants. Doesn't work out too well for him. Okay. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. Um, if you remember here, we were talking about Jephthah. Um, once again, Israel is doing sight, evil in the sight of Yahweh, as we've heard many, many times. And so Yahweh allows the Ammonites to conquer and rule over Israel. So Yahweh has now reappeared in the narrative after chapter 9. Jephthah is introduced. He's introduced as literally the son of a whore, son of a prostitute, right? This is how he's introduced. He's an outcast. But he gets a reputation as a good mercenary who lives outside the law. So he's invited by the people of Gilead to lead them. And what we see here um, is probably we're seeing an indication of the leadership vacuum that it currently exists in Israel. They are so desperate for anyone who has the slightest leadership capabilities that they invite this guy, Jephthah, who is an outlaw, to lead them. Now, Jephthah is going to enter into uh, negotiations with Ammon. When the negotiations don't work, they fail. And Jephthah makes a vow to God. This is the key of, the, of these chapters. He makes a vow to God that if God will only help him win over the people of Ammon, then he will sacrifice the first thing to come out of his house when he returns from battle. He'll sacrifice it. So he does win the battle. He comes back home. And it's his daughter who's the first person to come out of the house to greet him. Um, Obviously, Jephthah didn't expect this. He ends up blaming her. So now he's got to sacrifice his own daughter. He was probably thinking an animal would come out of the house. Instead, it was his daughter. Now he has to sacrifice her. And this is interesting. She, she reacts very calmly to her death sentence, which I, I didn't really think sounded all that right. I think her reaction has been sanitized a little bit. Um, it's just too rational for a young girl in this kind of a situation. Anyway, she asks for two months, before she dies to mourn her virginity Which basically means that she'll never be married She'll never have a family And then we're told that she goes into the mountains With her friends um, Maybe she's a total badass, I don't know But she survives with her friends For two months in the mountains There's got to be more to that story Maybe that's another movie idea Jephthah's daughter in the wilderness Fighting jackals I, I can't help but picture Tatooine And Jawas and I know that's wrong And heretical and I'm sorry for that But that's what I'm picturing. Um, Anyway, she comes back, and apparently she's sacrificed. Great movie idea. Now, did Yahweh approve of this sacrifice, of Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter? Did Yahweh approve of this? Well, from my perspective, given Judges' view on women, no, I, I can't see where he did. I cannot see where God approved of this. It was a stupid vow that Jephthah made, but to actually follow through with it is even a worse sin. And then at the end of chapter 12, we see that the people from Gilead are now guarding the Jordan River. And the people of Ephraim uh, were trying to cross, but they would mispronounce the password because they have a northern accent and that they would be killed. So it lends some historical some historical flavor to this whole story. It's something that uh, we normally wouldn't really think about that these various tribes and the people living in the land have different accents, the same way that we do in the U.S., the same way that you do in Europe. Makes sense, right? Okay. Chapters 13 through 16 is the granddaddy, judge of them all, Samson. And we spent quite a bit of time on Samson. Um, This messenger, angel, what have you, appears to Samson's parents. They ask him his name. To which he replies, quote, it is too wonderful, end quote. In other words, how can you possibly be asking me my name? The ancient Near Eastern concept of reciting or knowing the name of a god, if you did this, if you knew the name of a god, if you recited it, that gave you access to that god's power. Okay, this was a common uh, concept in the ancient Near East. And so we see that uh, playing itself out as the parents interact with this messenger. The messenger won't tell them his name because they may abuse that power. Now the parents are afraid they're going to die because they have seen God. They've seen Yahweh. Now Samson, meanwhile, grows up and he wants to marry a Philistine girl. This is clearly against everything that they are commanded in the Old Testament, in the law. Um, and we, we encounter this whole mythology now of Samson. The killing of the lion, returning to it, and there's honey in the carcass. All of these stories. Now, in in, in all of this, we see Samson violating his Nazarite vows. He's touching carcasses. Um, he's, he does all kinds of things that violate his vows. Now, at the wedding, the wedding feast where he's going to marry this Philistine girl, he makes a bet with the Philistine men. And there's this riddle that he tells regarding the carcass of the lion that he killed. And they can't come up with the answer. His new wife, the Philistine girl, is now threatened by the other Philistines. Hey, you better get this answer for us. You better you better sweet talk this guy, do whatever you have to do to get the answer to the riddle, which she does. Uh, later, Samson goes to visit his wife. But her father has given her away to someone else. Now the father wants Samson to, to marry one of the sisters instead. Well, Samson doesn't like this at all. What Samson does, he gets three hundred foxes, he ties their tails together, torches in between each of the knots, and he sends the foxes into the crops. The Philistines then take the father and Samson's wife into the fire. So they're gonna they're gonna retaliate against this family that's caused all these problems for them. Samson himself is now gonna retaliate. And then he goes to a, to live in a cave. So, <laughs> Samson is a wild mess. He creates a wild mess all around him wherever he goes. Now we have this thing with the foxes. You know, is it are we meant to accept that this was something that literally happened? I think that's absurd. I think it's ridiculous. That is never what the Bible intended for us to think. It's 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 humor. It's it's supposed to be blown so far out of proportion that we laugh, but did Samson set a fire in the crops? Hey, very possibly. Well, Samson eventually is captured, but he's able to break free, and we're told he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And again, this is not meant to be literal. Um, yes, the Bible says it, but did he kill a lot of people? Yeah, very possible. So despite yet another violation of his, of his Nazarite vows, once again, he's killed something that belonged to a dead animal, Yahweh is still working through Samson, and that's the point of all this. Okay, so Samson goes to Gaza to sleep with a prostitute. <laughs> this guy's like incredible. I, I, like, you can't make this stuff up. Now, the people of Gaza are waiting to ambush him. So Samson gets up, maybe earlier than they expected, after sleeping with this prostitute, and he rips the city gates out of their hinges and carries the gates up to Hebron. Now, what, what literally does this mean? It's 40 miles, 40 miles from Gaza to Hebron. He gains 3,000 vertical feet while carrying this absurdly heavy gate. Again, it's it's meant to be humor. It's meant to be exaggeration. But he falls for this girl, Delilah, in the Sorek Valley, which is controlled by the Philistines. And um, the Philistines end up bribing her They bribe her with an absurd amount of money, 550 times what an annual typical wage would be. Now, one thing that the story of Samson and Delilah does for us is it highlights the role of women, and this is true throughout the book of Judges, that we are meant to notice the power of women in the story, but we're also meant to notice their powerlessness. In one sense, Delilah here has all kinds of power over Samson. She has power of the situation. But in another very real sense, she is powerless. She is at the mercy of the Philistine men who have bribed her. She really doesn't have much of a choice um, if she doesn't want to get killed herself. So she accepts the bribe. We don't really know much about the motivations of, of Delilah. Did she really love Samson? Did she not? We don't really know. But you know the back and forth that happens between Samson and Delilah. Eventually, she wears him down. He tells her the secret of his strength, his hair. And while he's asleep, his hair is shaved off. The Philistines capture him because now the strength of Yahweh has left him. They tie him up between the pillars. But Samson asks God for strength. For one last time, his hair has begun to grow out again. He pushes on the pillars and the Philistines fall to their deaths. Samson may have ended up doing the will of God by accident, really motivated by his selfish motivations. We learn that God's purposes get fulfilled eventually. Samson was a participant in God's work, but really his eye was not on God's purposes as much as his own. And you and you see what happened to him. All right, moving on, chapter 17 and 18. If you remember here, um, These chapters are going to show us the breakdown of Israelite religion, whereas chapters 19 to 21, to the end of the book, shows us the breakdown in Israelite society. Okay, so 17 and 18, we're talking about the religion, the state of Israelite religion. We have this character Micah. Micah's mother has made a series of idols. Well, Micah puts these idols into a private shrine after some other events take place puts him in a private shrine, and has his own sons installed as priests. Now clearly this was not in accordance with the law, with Deuteronomy, with Leviticus. This is not how priests are made. You don't just appoint your sons to be priests. <clears throat> so this is not indicative of the way that Israel is supposed to worship. And again, we're kind of seeing here Micah is in the north. We're seeing a little bit of this anti-northern attitude um, since this takes place in Ephraim. Like, look how bad the northern people are. Not that the southern people were really all that much better. But remember, there's a political agenda attached to the book of Judges. Okay. but And by the way that they're worshipping, we see Micah, and we see the people who surround Micah. By the way that they are worshipping, we see that the Canaanite ways of worship have overtaken the proper worship of Yahweh. Okay. A young Levite wanders north to Ephraim where Micah finds him. So Micah hires this Levite to be his personal priest. Again, Levites are not supposed to be hiring themselves out to be priests, um, personal priests. So Micah's using his idol, he's using his personal priest, in effect, in his mind, to guarantee Yahweh's blessing on his life. These are being used as totems. They're being used as like a lucky charm, basically, that if I've got my own priest, I've got my own shrine, um, why would Yahweh not look favorably on me? Meanwhile, we have the tribe of Dan and they're looking for a place to settle. Um, The Danites attack this peaceful town called Laish um, and ransack it. But before this, they had come to Micah's house and they had stolen Micah's idols. And at the same time, they also steal Micah's personal priest. They convince the Levite to come with them. Micah chases them down, but the tribe of Dan threatens him. He backs off. The Danites basically can do whatever they want with impunity, and Micah is left without any way of legal recourse. Okay. Chapter 19, we spent an extensive amount of time, if you remember, uh, that's where we had our, um, our guest interview with Deidre. Um, this is the rape of the concubine, the, the Levite's concubine. Okay. We see the woman, again, we're meant to notice her power, but also her powerlessness. And uh, we definitely see that in chapter 19. Her body is basically turned into a political tool. She's carved up into pieces and sent throughout the nation of Israel to incite them against the tribe of Benjamin. And this is the event that then spurs on the action of chapters 20 and 21. We are reminded once again that these judges were individual. They had their own local ambitions, and the tribes are distinct personalities. But now they're all going to come together in chapters 20 and 21. They're all going to come together to fight against the tribe of Je- of Benjamin that has been accused of doing these horrendous, awful things to the Levite's concubine. Never mind that the Levite himself was a horrendously horrible person. They leave that part out, conveniently. But because of the rape, all of Israel is now united against the tribe of Benjamin, who they blame for this rape. Um, The Levite, again, scumbag among scumbags, focuses on himself, how he has been wronged, the insult to his honor when his concubine was raped. And he convinces the people to take up arms. And now the people are going to seek out God's guidance in attacking Benjamin. But this generic term for God is used, meaning that perhaps they they may not have even been asking Yahweh. They could have been asking some other version of who they thought God might be, Um, some weird combination of Yahweh and Baal and Astra. Um, We're not really sure which god they're actually asking for favor here. In any case, um, this god tells them to go ahead, but they keep failing in battle. So we have Yahweh, or some version of Yahweh, telling them to go fight. They go fight, and then they lose, despite God's direction. And, And we talked a little bit about, well, how do we reconcile that? And then the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, suddenly appears in the narrative. And Aaron's grandson is now serving as priest. Uh, What this means, what this tells us, is that the Book of Judges is not being presented to us in chronological order. Um, The ancient oral history is being preserved in this document. Because now we're going way back in time to Aaron and Moses, and Aaron's grandson is still alive at this point. And we know that the, there's a literary similarity between the ambush of Ai and Joshua and the ambush of Benjamin here in the book of Judges. One is the ambush of a Canaanite city, that's Joshua, but the other is an ambush against one of their own tribes, and that, of course, is in Judges. They're not supposed to be ambushing their own people. Well, the people of Israel now, um, sit before God, um, But again, which God? Do they understand really who Yahweh is or they mixed him up with another God? Uh, But they're afraid. Benjamin might die out. And and despite what they initially wanted to happen, now they're afraid. Like, we can't let one of our own tribes die out. And it's a comedy of errors after this. They kidnapped the girls of Jebus Gilead to give to Benjamin, killing all the others, even the the non-virgin girls. So these were likely very little girls who were abducted and taken to be wives. But it's not enough. They still need more girls for the men of Benjamin. So now the men of Benjamin, Benjamin, let's try, try to say that a few times, the men of Benjamin go up to Shiloh, and they hide in the bushes, and they capture their wives, and there you go. So at the end of Judges, each tribe is once again isolated from each other, and it's messy. The book of Judges is messy because we're running to show the dysfunction here. There's no central leadership, and the worship of Yahweh has been corrupted. Okay, I don't know if you can hear this. There's this alarm going on outside, like every 10 seconds, so I don't know. Maybe you can't even hear it. Hopefully it's not a distraction for you, but it's a distraction for me. It's kind of making me angry here. But anyway, enough of that. Let's let's summarize this whole thing. Okay. Um, the Book of Judges. Here's... here's here, Let's boil it down. Multiple authors. Some oral tradition, some very ancient oral tradition. These stories, which were probably small, one chapter at a time, have been compiled together to make the book of Judges. There's many, many authors. There might have been a couple different editors who compile this information together into a single scroll, and that's why we get Judges. But even though it's a compilation, even though it's spread out over a period of time, it's not necessarily chronological, but yet yeah, it probably reflects actual events that took place. The period of Judges is probably a historical time in the nation of Israel's history. So we should, we should have a lot of confidence in the material within the book of Judges, as long as we understand um, that it, the writers had certain agendas that they were trying to communicate. Okay. Okay. The covenant with God is central to understanding the book of Judges, the same way that it is central for us as Christians today. Our own obedience is also framed within a covenant, modern day. Um, from Gideon, we learned that potential before God doesn't necessarily translate into greatness. It doesn't mean that you you yourself will be always obedient to God. God may have a great call and purpose in your life, and you could still you could still have some significant issues in your life that God is trying to help you work through. Um, God does not always pick the people who have everything together. God picks people who are willing to be obedient and are willing to submit to him. Now, we didn't necessarily see that in the book of Judges. That's more of a New Testament theme. Um, But I definitely believe that. Okay, women. Women in the book of Judges, we notice their power, and we also notice their powerlessness. We notice in Judges 19, for example, how the woman is used as a political tool. And finally, we, we learn about Israel. Israel isn't really one nation during this time of their history. It's, it's, these judges have authority that's pretty localized over clans and tribes, but not over the entire nation. There is no king that governs all of Israel. The nation of Israel is fragmentary. There's no central social or the religious leadership or accountability. Um, which in part is one of the factors that leads them to demand a king in the book of 1 Samuel. All right, that's a lot of talking. I I hope this wasn't boring for you. I hope that this was something useful. I hope that's something that, uh, yeah, that that neatly kind of summarized what we've talked about and not the most artistic presentation maybe. I know I just kind of regurgitated the material that we um, studied, but yeah, hopefully it's useful for you. I think that Judges holds a lot in terms of not only understanding Israel's history and learning more about the context of the Old Testament in general, but um, I think it reveals something about the character of God, that we have this society that is just breaking down, and the religion is breaking down, society is breaking down, people are being mistreated, there is no accountability, we have this entire scene of dysfunction. And through it all, we see God attempting to get people back on track by raising up these judges. But the judges themselves are seriously flawed human creatures. They, though they have the potential to lead their people into greatness, into obedience before God, more often than not are choosing their own selfish ambition. And that's the way that history played out for the nation of Israel. And we see why by the time we get to 1 Samuel, they are ready to have a king Give us one leader, give us somebody who's going to hold the fabric of our society and our religion together. And of course, that we know from our Old Testament how that works out for them. But <laughs> um, I think Judges is important to understand because it gives us a flavor of the character of God in the Old Testament being merciful, trying to work in and through human history to get people out of a desperate situation. And I believe that that's the way the covenant that we have with God works even today, that we see the sacrifice of Christ being very much the same model, where we are sinful, we fall short of the glory of God, and here he sends his very own son to to get us out of the predicament that we are hopelessly entangled in. And we see this as a hallmark of the characteristics of Yahweh, of God the Father, and that's why I believe the Book of Judges is important because it points to a consistency between the Old and New Testament gods. Okay, that is it for me. Um, signing off. Next podcast that I do, which will be much sooner than this one came to you. I know there was a delay of a long time between the last two podcasts that I did. The next one will come soon. And um, I'm going to surprise you a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here. I've got some ideas for what I'd like to do next. And um, I hope you'll tune in. Shalom, peace to you. This has been so much fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you. We'll see you later.